If you would stand with me and we'll ask for God's blessing upon the, the reading and the preaching of Scripture. Let's pray. You know, Father, we ask for your blessing as we come now to your word to hear it preached, explained. Lord, that you might use the word this morning to exhort us in our walk with you. That you would use your word to correct any false ideas, any misunderstandings. That you would use your most precious word to direct our paths. Strengthen our integrity, the righteousness that we have in Christ. Strengthen our homes. Strengthen our testimony. Strengthen this church body. Lord, help us put our hands to the the righteous work of the gospel. Lord, and be mature men and women of the faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to read from James chapter 1 and verse 1. Hear now the word of the living God. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, brothers and sisters, we begin this morning our official study of the book of James, and we will get no further than verse 1. And the reason for that is that in verse 1, there is a fundamental idea that we must reconcile before we get into all of the principles and moral exhortations that James provides for us. Now let me go ahead and give you that key rule and principle. It's found right there in James's testimony of himself where he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In that statement lies the key, the kernel, if you will. The very seed of which everything else in the book is going to blossom and flow from. James identifies himself as a servant. A doulos. Some translations render it slave in order to convey the idea of, a, of someone who has absolutely no inherent personal rights whatsoever. In order to emphasize this, this humility that James is displaying in identifying himself as such a person of low condition. Now, brothers and sisters, before I launch into the discussion of what this servitude is and what it should look like and how that should impact our lives, we should consider the verse and what is obvious in the verse. Now, there is some discussion about whether or not the James that wrote this general letter to the church is the brother of John or the brother of Jesus. And there's a lot of debate about that. And I don't think I could settle that debate with you this morning. Plausible arguments are presented... For both. However, I do lean toward this James being the, the half-brother, if you will, of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the siblings that Scripture speaks of. And in the very beginning of the Gospels, being one of those siblings of Jesus that did not believe that He was the Christ and the Messiah. But knowing that the Scriptures reveal to us that on Jesus' resurrection, He went and presented Himself to James. And James became a convert of the Lord Jesus Christ. Assuming that this is his half-brother. 
raised in the same household. I can't imagine what that would have been like to be in the presence of Jesus growing up. I don't even want to speculate. Nevertheless, if this is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, it does lend itself to a tremendous weight that now this one who did not believe in Christ as the Messiah now not only believes in Christ, but considers himself to be a servant of Christ. Now, no doubt, the idea here is to convey a lowly position. A lowly position. James was a pillar, considered a pillar of the Jerusalem church. He was considered one of its stalwart and most faithful teachers of the Christian church in Jerusalem. And for James to assume this lowly position does by example lead us to consider our own, our, our, own, our thoughts of ourselves. How we see ourselves in light of our faith, in light of our Christianity. James is not taking any credit for his relationship with Jesus. He doesn't identify himself as the half-brother of Jesus in some way riding on the coattails of growing up in the same household. He doesn't even present himself as that stalwart, faithful, popular teacher of the mother church in Jerusalem. He doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't do what sadly many, many, Christian ministers do today, and that is promote themselves. Introducing themselves in the way of promoting their ministry, their teaching, and who they are. James doesn't do that. James wants us to see his identity is not in himself and the gifts that he has. It's solely in the relationship he has with God. And that relationship is described to us as that of a servant and master. I want you to think about that. James is content to confess that his relationship with the Father and the Son is that of a slave and a master. That of a master and a servant. That's how James opens this letter up and identifies himself. Now it's interesting, or at least I think it's interesting, that that would not be a way most of us would describe ourselves. I mean, if you were, to, if you were asked, take one word and describe yourself, what would that one word be? Faithful? Obedient, loving, kind, mannerly. What would it be? How would you describe yourself? And here James describes himself in one word and he says servant. I'm a doulos. I'm a bond servant. A bond servant was a servant that had somewhat of an interesting relationship with the master. A bondservant was someone that committed themselves to the service of their master in a voluntary sense. I want to serve. I want to serve my master because he is a good master to me. It's in the relationship with my master that I have been the best person I've ever been. You know, relationship-wise. My master makes me a better man. 
having this accountability, having his guidance, having his wisdom, having his influence, having his encouragement. They are so important and they become so necessary in my life. And by God's wisdom, I see that I am free to walk away from this relationship or I can commit myself to my master and be his servant forever. That's what a bond slave did. He was one who could, who has fulfilled the service that he had originally committed to and now he chooses to stay in that relationship. He's a bond slave. He's a bond servant. He chooses to remain in that condition. And the reason he chooses so is because in that condition, he's the best person he could, that he's ever been and could be. And that's not a testimony to his own salvation. It's a testimony to the gracious kindness and influence that the Master has had upon him. And yet we're speaking here in a spiritual sense. James is relating his relationship. Openly confessing, I am a bond slave of God and of Christ. Acknowledging that both the Father and the Son are God. And deserve service and worship. You can see here in in this sense, as we open this up more fully, that this is the keeping of the first commandment. That God is to be served. That God is to be worshipped. That God is to be without reservation. Loved, adored, obeyed, served. Without any reservation of mind and thought. Without any, any of our desires conflicting with that service and worship and adoration and obedience. And yet... Let's be honest. Sometimes our mind does conflict with that service, doesn't it? Sometimes our mind does conflict with what we owe God. Right? Sometimes our desires conflict with what God's desires are. And yet, we know, because of the teaching of the first commandment, that... There should be no reservation whatsoever in the service and adoration and worship, any hesitation at all in serving the one true and living God. Notice, not only the writer of this letter and the testimony... And we're going to open that up more fully in just a second. But who he writes to? And it's to 12 tribes. James identifies those Hebrew Christians with this Jewish nomenclature. And he's recognizing that there was a great, in the, in the great outpouring of the Spirit of God on that day of Pentecost, at that feast of Pentecost, there were thousands of Jews converted. Thousands of Hebrews converted. And that the church in a very primary in a very primary way was a very Jewish church in the very beginning days. But what happened as time went on, as the gospel continued to spread and as the church began, continued to grow and as more and more Jews were being converted? I mean, if you read the book of Acts, Acts is a tremendous a testimony to the power and the glory of the Spirit of God converting souls and tells us that there were many Pharisees converted, many priests converted, many of high-ranking officials in the Jewish spiritual theocracy converted to Christ. But not without problems. And not without Trials and tribulations as more and more Jews had 
become converted and believers in Jesus Christ and as they were studying scriptures and praying and fellowshipping and breaking bread with one another, they did, they did bring on to themselves a, a hostility from those unbelieving Jews and from the Roman government itself. As Paul, as James identifies these 12 tribes as those who have been dispersed abroad, the 12 tribes who are dispersed, knowing that this persecution and the trials and tribulations of their testimony in Christ had dispersed them out into all the surrounding regions. And James writes this letter in order to give them general guidance and wisdom in the trials and tribulations that they face. And that's why he deals with so many topics. That's why James handles so many topics that I mentioned last week is because he is writing this general epistle in order to encourage, in order to incite faithfulness, in order to describe to them what true religion looks like because as they go out and as they are persecuted, listen, many of them had to leave their own homes. They had to leave their their livelihoods. They had to they were uprooted, if you will, for the sake of being Persecuted for the sake of losing all they had. They had to go out and find other ways of making a way of making a living. And they, which, what does that do? That in sort of incites faith, doesn't it? You got to trust the Lord. I mean, here you are uprooted from something that you've been doing for three generations. Been handed down from father to son, father to son, father to son, and now you've been uprooted. Now you've got to go into regions and lands of, that you're not used to or familiar with. You have to mingle with people that you don't know, and you have to begin another to make another living. And that could be a very fearful thing, couldn't it? They were not to be motivated by fear, but they were to be motivated by faith and trust in the Lord. And that's one thing James does is even in chapter 1, what does he do? He says, listen, do you not know that your heavenly Father is good? And that He only knows how to give good things. And He has to deal with trials and tribulations, doesn't He? And He has to deal with the attitudes of the, of, the, of the Christian as they face these trials and tribulations. He has to address that. He has to deal with it. He has to deal with the relationships of, of the poor Christian and the rich Christian. There was conflict there. The rich were uh, tempted and, and as James discussed, as James writes, did take advantage of the poor Christian. That's not, is that anything uncommon? No, it's not. It's not uncommon for the rich to take advantage of the poor, and it's not uncommon for the poor to just complain and murmur and, and, and speak harshly against the rich, is it? And yet James deals with that. James has a whole portion of the book where he addresses the tongue, calling it a fire, and talks about how the mature person can subdue the tongue and put the tongue in subjection. These 12 tribes, brothers and sisters, are those, I think, who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those Hebrews who had put their faith and trust in Christ. And now, for whatever reason, in God's providence, they have been persecuted, they are suffering, they are being challenged in so many ways and, and dispersed abroad, and they don't understand what, what's going on. They're confused. They feel isolated. They feel alone. They feel helpless. And James writes this epistle to give encouragement, to give direction, to give wisdom. And he says, not only do you need to ask God for wisdom, but I'm going to show you how you ask for it. And I'm going to show you what that wisdom looks like. I mean, that's how clear James is in, the, in this little book. Well, but those are sermons that are yet to come. I mean, they're, they're coming, but not for today. 
And I don't want to preach those sermons today, but I do want to address that there was a tremendous need for the book that we are studying. A tremendous need for it. And brothers and sisters, I, I would suggest that we today need this book. And we need to begin right where James begins. We need to, to ask ourselves the question, can I in good conscience identify myself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? Can I in good conscience make that claim, give that confession, and believe it myself? You see, when we finish unpacking this idea of servant, then you're going to notice and recognize how important the trial is to the investigation of our testimony. What does a trial do? When you think about a court, what is a trial? What do we do in a trial? Things are examined. There's testimony given. For and against. There's evidence that's presented for and against. And what do the attorneys do in a trial? They, they pose their evidence, if you will. They, they give their evidence and then they begin to pontificate and, and give reasons why that their interpretation of the evidence is the correct interpretation. And that's the mindset of what's going on in this trial. And that's what James is going to lead to when he finishes up this idea, this key fundamental idea of being a servant of God and of Lord Jesus Christ. That is, now as we face this trial, what has this trial produced? Is there evidence? Is there evidence? And brothers and sisters, if I scrape, if I... If I squeeze a grape, is orange juice going to come out of it? If I squeeze a grape, is orange juice going to come from it? No. The only thing that's going to come out of a grape is grape juice. Because that's the nature of the grape itself. And when that grape is put under pressure and squeezed... What is inside comes out. And that's, that's the idea here. James declares himself, he gives confession and testimony that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the servitude? Well, Whatever it is, listen carefully, please. Whatever it is, two things. It cannot violate the image of God, and it can never violate the moral law of God. Now, here's why that's important. The idea of religious servitude is nothing new. So when someone claims to be a servant of God, how do you examine their claims? How do you examine their confession? How do you know whether or not they are a true servant of God or not? Well, by the way, their servitude is displayed. Now, I want to do something that the reformers were very prompt or very uh, had a habit of doing, and that is I, I want to use Catholicism as a negative. When you talk about being a servant of God and you lock yourself away in a monastery, and all you do is chant and self flagellate, beat yourself. Punish yourself because you know that you are a sinner. That's the kind of servitude that defaces the image of God. 
And that's the kind of servitude that breaks God's moral law. Because God did not create man to lock himself away and to chant 12 hours a day and to whip himself in order to pay for his sins. So you want, I want you to understand that whatever this servitude is, whatever this bond servitude is, it cannot deface the image of God in man and it cannot violate God's moral law. Anything that requires the kind of service from us that would deface the image of God in us is not true religion. It's not true religion. And that's the very heart of the book of James. True religion. Pure, undefiled religion, James says, are these things. If this servitude requires us or keeps us from obeying God's moral law or hampers or hinders us from desiring to even keep it but punishes us for doing such things, it's not true religion. Let me give you another example. Everything James writes about, he writes out of this vein of grace. He writes out of this vein of of gracious righteousness and that faith is the exhibit of this gifted righteousness in Christ. See, James is not a book that teaches faith a faith that is, um, or a works faith that secures salvation. What James teaches us is that the faith that God graciously gives to us that we express is nothing more than the fruit of the righteousness that's been implanted in us by the grace of God to begin with. Let me give you an example. Turn over to, to chapter 2. And this is sort of how James writes in this, in this pattern of wisdom literature. You'll see how he, much of the book of James reads like Proverbs or poetry, some of the Psalms. Verse 14, he says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? Notice the questions James asks. Got to keep up with that in wisdom literature. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says says to them, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, if it has no even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But if someone but someone will say, You have faith. I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You see what James does. James begins, he he says, listen, my faith is exhibited in my manners, in my righteousness. That is, this righteousness that's been gifted to me in Christ, that I have secured to myself by faith, is now exhibited in my manners, in my obedience, in the outward working out of this inward reality of salvation in my life. And look, he says, If you believe in uh, God's one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But you... But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, think about the illustration he just gave. Here's someone in destitute need of food and clothing. And for you to just say, be well, be warm, be filled, God bless you. How did that help and serve that person? He said, that's useless. Those words are useless. The faith that God requires of us is gifted to us. And I'm not going to go into that this morning. You've heard this before. It's gifted to us. We exercise what we call saving faith. Saving faith 
is the rule and principle of our lives that governs our manners, our outward actions. And that's exactly what he does in the next few verses when he talks about Abraham. Notice, notice there is this, this sense of this righteousness. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? He says, Abraham's works was displayed by trusting God and offering up his son. You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of works, faith was perfected, completed, matured. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by way uh, by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Well, here's what he says. He says, here Abraham, is, here Abraham, when he was told to offer up his son, displayed his saving faith by working out his obedience. Rahab displayed her saving faith by what? Protecting the spies and sending those who were seeking to harm the spies in another direction. Her faith was displayed in God by sending out those who would persecute God's children in another direction. Proving, if you will, that they believed in God. Now, brothers and sisters, this righteousness that I'm, I mean, this servitude that I'm speaking of this morning is a servitude whereby the image of God is not harmed but enhanced. What were we made to do? We were made to adore, worship, serve, and live for God, were we not? We were made upright in righteousness and integrity. What was it that harmed and defaced that image? Sin. Sin. Sin defaced the image of God. Sin caused us to to what? Long for uh, to serve ourselves rather than God. To exchange, as Paul talks about, the true and living God for idols. You see, brothers and sisters, servitude is essential to religion. And true religion is essential to serving God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the way that the Word of God reveals us to. You might put it this way. In the words of the Apostle Paul, you become what you serve. Turn with me to Romans 6. Look at verse 15. Now, now Paul is addressing and dealing with this idea of of true faith, this idea of justifying faith. This, and, and he is now addressing this mentality that might come because if you are taught, right, that grace is free and salvation is free by grace, what's, what's a tendency of some people when they hear such a thing? Well, if it's free and I couldn't do anything to get it, well, then I can't do anything to lose it. You know, if, I, if it's free and, you know, it's no big deal, just keep on sinning. So Paul is addressing antinomianism. Paul is addressing this licentiousness that comes in the mentality of someone who believes that they understand this idea of free grace as licentious grace. And Paul said that's a big mistake. It's a big mistake to see free grace as licentious grace. This free grace never lends itself to sinfulness. So listen to what Paul says in verse 15. He says, what then? 
Or let's back up a little bit. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body as sin to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but grace. What then? Okay, now notice what he just said. And this is an explanation of what he talks about over here, about this abounding grace in, in, in Romans 5. What then? What's he saying? If it's by free grace and we're not under law, we're under grace, what then? Okay, that's the question. You're not under law, you're under grace. What then does that mean? Can I keep on sinning? Here's what Paul says. Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. That Greek phrase, may it never be, is one of the strongest negatives you can make. May it never be. May it, it can never be. It, it, it absolutely cannot be. There's no equivocation here, Paul. There's no room for duplicity here. Verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the whom, of whom of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. See, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now I'm going to stop there. Because exactly what Paul is saying is what James says, I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have been set free from the bondage and slavery of sin now that I might freely serve God and Jesus Christ in righteousness. What you serve will define who you are. And what you do defines who you serve. Let me give you an example of sort of this, this, this idea. Matthew... Chapter 6, the Lord Jesus says, You cannot serve both God and money. You will learn to love one and hate the other. You cannot serve two masters. But where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Now, I think this illustration fits, and I hope I can make it work. But, and that's a principle that the world understands. Where your interests are, where your where your 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 interests lie, your desires lie, there your service will be. When when James calls himself a servant, a a doulos, a bond slave of God and of Jesus Christ, what he is saying is he's not saying I'll robotically do whatever God wants me to do. That's not what he is saying, and I think that's a misconception that maybe. Some of us may have. That's not at all. In fact, that's the way some people view the Reformed faith. We all believe that man is nothing more than a robot, that he slavishly obeys God like a robot. He doesn't really want to, but he does so because he's duty-bound and all of these things, and he just does that because he's all concerned about obedience. No, no, that's not what James is saying. James says, I have been changed. My heart has been changed. My life has been changed. I've been given a new uh, principle of life by the Spirit and by faith. And now I serve the Father and I serve the Son of God with joy, gladness, and adoration. I desire His will to be my will. I want to obey Him. I see the great benefit. I see the great benefit. Of placing myself into permanent servitude 
of this God. Now, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. You young people, listen up. You will never make it as a Christian if you don't see the benefits of Christianity. If you don't see the benefits of Christ. If you don't see the benefits of being a believer in the true God. If you don't see the benefits of true religion over all the false religions out there. If you don't see the benefit of the servitude of God and Christ, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it because what you just what you do is you only do it to go through the motions. You do it because you have to do it. You, that's the robotic aspect that people condemn. That's why there's a lack of joy. There are churches are filled with joyless professors of faith. And the reason they're joyless because they don't act out of a heart of servitude to God. They don't understand it. They don't understand that it's the bond slave that says, I desire my master. James admits the doctrine of election. He talks about how God in His grace elected and chose them. But nevertheless, where does that decision that my master is the best one for me? See, what I'm teaching you is perfectly in line with what Joshua told the children of Israel going into the promised land. After going into the promised land, Joshua's an old man. He's at the end of his days. He's at the end of his career. His role is done. He's no longer needed. And as an old man, he looks at the children of Israel and he says, Hey, choose whom this day you shall serve. Right? If Baal be God, serve him. Jehovah be God, serve him. But as for me and my house, we will serve the living God. It's the same thing. It's the same thing, brothers and sisters. It's the same thing Elijah did. Choose. Baal, right? Mount Carmel, choose. Which one? Which one will you serve? You want to serve Baal? You want to serve Jehovah? You see, brothers and sisters, the kind of servitude that James is talking about is that voluntary, wholehearted commitment where he says, my master is the best for me. His influence, his grace, his resources, all of this... Blesses my life and enhances me so that I can be the man that I was made to be. Brothers and sisters, you will be the man, the woman that you were created to be. You can only do that in serving serving God and Christ. And that's what I'm talking about. That is this servitude here. And and I'm going to go back to this illustration. I I watched this this news segment about um, social engineering. And how uh, multi-social uh, platforms like Facebook and YouTube and others hire social engineers to create the most addictive product that they can make. They want to create addiction. They want to create this, this desire to check it every five minutes. They want to, by the way it's structured, by the way it looks, by the tabs you have to click on, by all the things you have to go through and maneuver in the app itself, they are creating, unbeknownst to the masses, an addictive nature in your life. So it's become so effective, so effective, that now psychologists are having to use terms that are related to the platforms. Facebook depression. It's actually defining certain terms used to describe certain conditions. Why? Because they are creating slaves. They are creating servants. And here's the description. I mean, I think you get the point, but here's sort of the thing. And you check this out. First of all, Well, you post something. How many times do you check it? See if somebody responded to it. What they tested and found out is that when someone posts a picture, a selfie, 
I had all these studies. When someone posts a picture of themselves, they are waiting for the response of their friends to go on there and go, oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, you're so smart. Oh, you're so this. Oh, you're so that. Oh, you're so wonderful. And when they do that, there is almost a 400% increase in their bodies of dopamine. Is that a hormone or a hormone that creates good feelings? Makes us feel good. You can exercise and it'll release dopamine. You can feel good. But there's many other things, right? That's not the only thing. But that waiting for the right response, not a negative response, the right response that it has, in, it has been tested to increase that hormone by 400%. Almost as much as the drug cocaine. And what happens is when you click they respond. You get a rush. You go down. You wait for a next click and the next click and the next click. Why? Because what they're doing, we're creating a class of children that's always looking for the next high, the next high emotion, and they have to live that way. And now they're realizing the negative and detrimental effects that these platforms have on small children. Because before, they never were exposed to stuff like that. The whole purpose of these social engineers is to create addiction to their product. A slave. That's why you walk around with your phone, constantly checking it, waiting on somebody to tell you something, waiting on somebody to talk to you. And what is happening is we are depersonalizing ourselves with the people around us. This is the interaction face-to-face. I'm not saying there's not a place for it. That's not what I'm saying. I think there is. But we have to be wise in what we give ourselves to. Now let me relate it back to the spiritual life. Brothers and sisters, if you are a slave of God, a servant of God, and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, imagine what that relationship looked like if it was related to your phone. Imagine. How much you would pray. Imagine how much you would praise God. Talk to Him. Be concerned about what God thought. Be concerned about what God says. Am I overstepping my bounds? I mean, am I saying something that's not Christian? See, this is true religion. True religion has to ask the question who are you going to serve? Because Bob Dylan says you're going to serve somebody. You're going to serve somebody. You're going to serve yourself. You're going to serve something. And you can serve God. But if you serve God, what does that look like? Well, that's what the rest of the book of James is about. James begins to unfold and lay open to us what true servitude to God and the Lord Jesus Christ looks like. And that's why he begins with trials. Because it's the trials of life that we become under investigation. We are examined. And we find out things about ourselves that we don't like. But things that can be corrected by God's grace. Things where we need to, to, to shore up. Things we need to get rid of. Things we need to be more, more concerned about. Because we, brothers, listen to me, are... We are the servants of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's the essence of true religion and Christianity. It's not, it's just not activity. It's not mindless activity. You know, people talking about the image of God, you know how many people talk about, well, in their version that, Faith is nothing, it's nothing intellectual. But see, God's not opposed to our minds. He wants us to think. That's why he says it right there in James, right? Consider it all joy. What's the word consider convey? Thought, contemplation, reason. 
Christianity isn't a check your head in at the door and just use your emotions. No, that is true religion and servitude is what? The whole person coming under the subjection of the grace and influence of God in a positive way. Where our minds are saturated with the, the, the Word and revelation of God. Where we are influenced emotionally to, to, to feel anger, joy, gladness. The problem with the church and when it comes to the emotion of anger and James deals with it is that we're not angry over the right things. We're angry over all the wrong things. It's too hot. It's too cold. I don't like the color. I don't like the times of the services. I don't like how long they are. I don't like how short they are. It's not about the right things. And a million babies, unborn children will be aborted. That our politicians can lie to us and we're just supposed to take it and act as if they are men of integrity and women of integrity. Oh, well, what can you do about it? We are calling evil good and good evil. And you are being influenced by it. Don't think you aren't. I want you to realign your thinking this morning with this thought. Can you confess along with James? Can I confess along with James? Can we confess along with James that we are servants of God? In the Lord Jesus Christ. His will, our will. I want to do His will. I want to please Him. Serving Him is the best thing for me. I'm a better man, a husband. I'm a better everything because I submit to the will of my Master. This is what's best for me. This is the heir of the kingdom of eternal life. This is what it means. You can serve all these other things, but you're going to have to ask yourself this. What's going to be the fruit of it? And that's what James teaches us, the fruit of these things. Ask yourself the question, brothers and sisters. Be honest with yourselves. What does James say? Don't deceive yourselves. Don't be deceived. Ask yourself the question. Deal honestly with it. The Lord will lead you and guide you. Faith in Christ is the starting place if you don't have it. This morning, if you are here and you don't have that kind of desire for, the, for God or you don't have that kind of desire for Christ, I'm going to ask you something. Have you ever really put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you ever repented of your sins? Have you ever seen your sins the way God sees your sins? Do you see your need for salvation? Do you see a need to be saved? Your mom and daddy can't save you. This church membership can't save you. Can't do it. Pastor Jess can't save you. Only Christ can save. And only Christ saves those who put their faith and trust in Him and repent of their sins and turn to Him as a slave from sin to now a slave of righteousness. Let's pray.